Okay, we're at Relational Theology number 15, and uh, we better pray. Tony, would you pray for us? Yes. Uh, Father, I want to thank you that your word is before us in black and white, so that we can sit with it and contemplate the mysteries, the ideas, the thoughts that would draw us not only to discover fact, but also to discover the author behind that fact. And so, Father, we want to understand your heart. We want to understand what you want of us and how we can live and what we can expect. So guide us, I pray, through your Holy Spirit. Open up our understanding. Change some of the paradigms, I ask, that we might not stay in a place of childlike faith, but we would go on in maturity, being more Berean, being more of the people who are workmen with your word, so that we can understand it and put it into practice, so that we're not only hearers, but doers. We ask for your grace on this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> one final kind of thing that I want you to be aware of as you look at theology and you look at the world around us and how people apply the word, and that's a uh, anti-supernatural worldview. So just as a review reminder, we've been, talked about the Renaissance, which was a breaking away from the corrupt authority of the Catholic Church. Uh, Renaissance means rebirth. It was a rebirth of Greek philosophy uh, and the authority of reason we talked about the last couple of weeks. We talked about the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle and how they became the foundation for the Renaissance. Uh, and as I said last week, the uh, Renaissance had a head start in Europe over the Reformation. It was going for a couple hundred years before the Reformation, which was a returning to the authority of the word rather than uh, the church uh, but even as we saw last week, some of the reform leaders were influenced by philosophy. And so it had a huge influence in Europe. But what I want you to, to realize is that it actually has won out in a cultural sense and has become much more of a factor in our culture. The foundation of Western culture, Western society is philosophy. It's the uh, Renaissance much more than the Reformation. Uh, and so I just want you to see that. So one of the, the products of that was an anti-supernatural worldview. And so, as I said before, Aristotle and Plato were Greek philosophers before Christ. Augustine kind of revived Plato, and so did Calvin. And Aristotle kind of said in the background, until the Renaissance, and Aristotle then began to have much more of a place. And one of what the things Aristotle said was that only what is natural is real. Only what you can know with your five senses. And so he kind of rejected Plato's dualism. Plato believed that there was a, for in essence, a spiritual realm and a natural realm. And the natural realm kind of echoed or reflected the spiritual realm. Uh, Aristotle did away with that completely and said the only thing that's real is the natural realm. Uh, and so that became the foundation uh, that led to an anti-supernatural worldview. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if all that is real is what is natural, 
then by default, there's no supernatural. And uh, so that kind of had that effect. And, and it wasn't called that, but it was more referred to as a scientific worldview. Uh, and so when you look at Darwin's theory of evolution, if you start with a presupposition that says there's no supernatural, then his theory makes good sense. He's trying to explain something from a natural dimension without there being any supernatural. But you have to understand, he started with a presupposition we talked about a few weeks ago. A presupposition that, that there was no supernatural. And that was the result of the uh, Aristotelian philosophy that impacted the culture. And so that kind of began to affect everything. Uh, just as an aside, let me just make a couple comments about, most of you are aware of this, but the scientific process or method, scientists consider that's how you prove something, the scientific method, which includes observation, a hypothesis about what you see, experimentation, which is measurement-based testing uh, of the deductions. That's the scientific method or process. Basically, how do we examine something in a uh, fixed setting that is reproducible, measurable, uh, and, and which is fine, but anything that doesn't fit into that category then can't be proved by science. When people say, how, can, you, can, you can't prove that God exists. No, you can't, because it doesn't fit but there's a whole lot of things that don't fit within that framework. Uh, when you get to things that don't fit into that framework, you don't look at proof, you look at evidence. And that was Simon Greenleaf, who was a Harvard professor, wrote two-volume work on the, uh, the rules of evidence that is still in operation 150 years later. It is still the foundation of uh, legal process, rules of evidence. So what is the evidence now, when you understand that, that applies to all kinds of stuff. It applies to cosmology. The study of the cosmos, that, none of that can be measured and proven. When you talk about history, people who were alive, you can't reproduce them in a laboratory. So they can't be proven. So it's evidence. How do we know that Napoleon existed? Well, that's the same thing when you're looking at crime. You're looking at history, things in the past. So what's the evidence? But when you talk about the origins of the world, you're, you're, it's in the same category. It can't be proven. So Darwin's theory of evolution is still just a theory because it can't be proven scientifically. So you have to examine the evidence, philosophy, all the esoteric things fit into that category and none of them can be proven. And so just, why did I throw that in there? Because a scientific anti-supernatural worldview virtually rules out examining most of the major issues of life. Because none of them can be proven. So what happened? We've had this radical shift in thinking. Uh, and, it, and it applies to all kinds of stuff, okay? I'm trying hard not to get sidetracked because I don't want to get into other things. But that anti-supernatural or scientific worldview 
became accepted in Western culture and was accepted by liberal theologians. So a whole bunch of liberal theologians began to say, there is no supernatural, therefore, everything that the Bible says about miracles is actually myths. It's some people who don't understand anything, and so it's all myths. It didn't actually happen. And so they began to uh, reject the authority of the Bible. In fact, one of the guys, Rudolf Voltman, wrote a book demythologizing the Bible. Basically, rewriting the Bible and taking everything supernatural out of it because he had an anti-supernatural worldview. Then along comes a conservative theologian, a guy named B.B. Warfield, who also accepted the anti-supernatural worldview, but he tried to maintain the authority of the Bible, that what the Bible said actually happened. So he developed this separated thing that, that the miracles of the Bible really did take place, but they don't take place anymore because we've accepted this anti-supernatural worldview. So he developed this concept, he didn't actually develop it himself, but he made it popular, called cessationism, that the miracles ceased. Now understand, that wasn't because he had read the Bible, that was because he had accepted an anti-supernatural worldview, and he was trying to, in his thinking, save the authority of the Bible in this context of liberal theology. And so he developed this, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Miracles, Basically, his premise was that real miracles had ceased with the age of the apostles, and therefore any miracles done today are either not real or they're done by the devil. <coughs> they're counterfeits, which is quite interesting. The premise behind it is he wasn't actually a totally anti-supernatural. He was just an anti-God-doing-supernatural. <laughs> But the devil could do it. Basically, he, uh, most of his belief was that they didn't actually happen. There is a natural explanation. Uh, something, you know, people always say, the skeptics always say, no, there's a natural explanation because they start with a anti-supernatural worldview. Uh, but understand this, and this is the point I wanted to make, that anti-supernatural worldview not only affected the culture, but it affected not just those guys, but in them, most of theology, most of the Christian world was influenced by either the liberal theologians or these cessationists, the conservative theologians, and those even that weren't somehow picked up an anti-supernatural perspective. Uh, so what happened is that the, the study of God, theology, became the focus rather than knowing God. You know the word theology is not even in the Bible. Did you know that? We talk about theology. The word theology literally means the study of God, but nowhere in the Bible are we told to study God. We're told to study, to show ourselves approved, to study the scriptures, but we're told numerous times to know God. Not to study God, but it became an academic approach as opposed to a relational approach. To the point that in many churches, people were, quote, saved and added to the church if they passed a class on doctrines called catechism. 
So you go to a class and you learn the basic doctrines and if you but if you understand those and accept those, then you're saved. <clears throat> And you're supposed to understand it. But understand that it becomes much more about beliefs, doctrines, than about relationship. See, but not only was there no miracles, ultimately that led to there not really being any spirit. The fruit of the spirit became character traits developed through discipline. So I was raised in a, as I've said before, an evangelical church, and that's what I was taught. These are character traits that if you discipline yourself, you can become loving and joyful and full of peace and have patience. And those are all character traits that we get by being self-disciplined. Rather than they're a fruit of being filled with the Spirit. So we actually end up subtly changing the Bible. Inspiration in many churches replaced the presence of God. If it was inspiring, if someone sang really well, we would just kind of get tingles and we would feel inspired. And so the focus became inspiration rather than recognizing the presence of God. It became what would Jesus do rather than Holy Spirit, what are you saying? It's us figuring out how Jesus would respond to a circumstance academically rather than relationally. Lord, what do you want to do here? Do you see the the difference? So ultimately, what we need to get back to and understand is that the whole goal of the Bible is relationship and not just knowledge. Interesting enough, uh, John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, if you actually read that, the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah Witnesses, which isn't actually a translation, uh, the JWs, they've actually changed that to reflect the age. This is eternal life, that they take in a knowledge of you. To me, that's the epitome of how that anti-supernatural worldview has affected much of the church. Not that the Jehovah's Witnesses are reflective of much of the church, but I think the, the mentality is there. Many churches don't say it, but they mean the same thing. This is eternal life, that you understand doctrine and theology. This is eternal life, that you have a knowledge of God, that you study God, that you study theology rather than that you actually have a relationship with God, resulted in a systematic approach to Bible study rather than a covenantal approach. Where we start with ideas and find one or two scriptures that tend to support those ideas and organize it systematically, rather than, why did God choose a series of progressive covenants to reveal himself to the planet? because the whole goal was relationship. It wasn't, you've gotta know about me, it's you've gotta know me. If it was simply you gotta know about me, he could've just downloaded information. That'd be fun. So, 
bottom line is my testimony, why we're actually doing this, is that I was raised, as I said, in an evangelical church. But I came to the conclusion one day when I heard someone preaching about knowing God that I knew a lot about him, but didn't know him. And uh, to me, that's when I got saved. That's when everything changed. And I want to say that the greatest privilege in my life has been knowing him. Not knowing about him. But there's something that happens when you actually know him. It makes partnering with him easier. It makes obeying him and walking in the spirit easier. Because you know who he is. Mary and I quote a scripture to each other all the time. Paul said, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so when we realize we're not our own, when we realize that the greatest privilege we have is knowing him, then any sacrifice that, that is required in obeying him is a whole lot easier to bear. Mary and I went to a missions conference in the end of 1976. And uh, we lived in Southern California. We were students at university and we drove across to uh, Urbana, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, to this mission conference with about 10,000 other students. <clears throat> and this is a conference with all mission organizations and encouraging people to have a heart for the nations. And one of the main speakers, uh, probably had more of an impact in my life. And uh, it was a woman named Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere had been a missionary in Uganda uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And in 1971, when Idi Amin's Revolutionary Army took over the nation, his army came in and killed almost all the missionaries, killed uh, all her, her friends, brutally uh, uh, beat and raped and killed her best friend. She was raped and beaten and left for dead. And that was 1971, 1976. She's speaking at this mission conference. You hear a story and everyone's going, I don't want to be a missionary. But her message was the privilege of serving God far outweighs the cost. And to me, that made no sense unless you know him. If it's just an academic belief about certain theological ideas, then there's no privilege. But when we know him, the privilege of serving God far outweighs the cost. That's probably why we've done a class called Relational Theology. Let's go back to looking at the Bible from a relational perspective. God wants relationship with us. And all that's happened is because we've turned our back on him and he's gone not only the extra mile, but the extra however long it took in order to win us back. And in all our study, if we lose sight of that, then we, we lose the, can't see the forest for the trees. We can talk about things like end times and rapture. And those are good things. What does the Bible say? But if we ever get so focused on that, that we start rating people by where they stand on these positions rather than do they know Jesus. We've, we've missed the whole thing. And unfortunately, that's what's happened in much of theology, much of the Christian world, is that we've lost 
the view of the forest for the trees. We we're so close to people making issues about this type of theological belief, or where do you stand on dispensationalism, that they end up fighting and not realizing, hey, the goal is that we have a relationship with Jesus. So I hope that in this looking at that relational theology, if nothing else, you come away with that. Let me read the Bible again and say, how much does God want to have a relationship with me? See, then it's not a matter of I've got to follow rules. It's a matter I get to. Why do I come to worship? Because I can't wait. Why does Mary hop up and down? Because she can't fly. <laughs> I mean, that sounds funny, but the reality is, why do we want to spend time with God? Because it's a rule that we have to in order to tick the box or because it's a privilege. The king of the universe has paid a huge price for me. So, that's the conclusion. Short, sweet, we're going to break it to our groups. Uh, but I hope in all this, you come out with a, just a more a desire, one, to know the Word, but to know the God who's revealed Himself in the Word. Amen.